All right, where did we leave off? Uh, Matthew 13, verse 45. 45. Oh, I put a little yellow marker on there. There you go. I wonder why I did that. What a yellow marker on that. Yeah. All right, we're getting near the end of chapter 13. We're blazing through uh, Matthew. Um, this is the last set of... Uh, this is a chapter of parables, and there's a couple of quick ones here, three quick ones, two that talk about the value of the kingdom, and the third one that talks about what happens on the bad side. We're on the second of the quick ones. Uh, the first one was um, the one directly before this. It's like the, the treasure hid in the field, which a man found and hid again uh, over the joy, and he goes to sell it. So we talked about that. So the second one that came right after this was another short one. Jesus said, again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant seeking fine pearls. Uh, the word again tells you that this is just like the one I just said. So he's, I knew that. I'm a little slow. Uh, I blame you. <laughs> oh, is that Wouldn't the be the first time. Time timer? Yeah. Well, yeah, who wants me to go over? Nobody. Uh, okay. <laughs> Thanks, Frank. <laughs> Everybody, thank you, Frank. <laughs> So, basically, again, indicates that this pearl will be like the last one, speaking of the value of the kingdom of heaven. It, it's a short little thing, and it says, And upon finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and, brought, and bought it. What this is saying is this pearl, this thing of value that he found, it doesn't have to be a pearl, it could be in anything. Uh, a merchant is someone who looks for value, someone who buys something because he knows it's valuable and it will be more valuable later. That's what a merchant does. Um, it's something that the Jews were very good at. Believe it or not, they, they, they were one of the first to actually get a merchant class that sat across from, uh, that wasn't really political. Uh, they created it, and they're very good at it. You know, how to make money from something, you know, just by going and getting it, bringing it here and selling it. And they've been extremely successful. Uh, very uh, and they work really hard i mean that doesn't just happen and in this day and age where everybody is deciding whether they hate jews or love them without ever knowing any you know just deciding one of the reasons that it has always happened as far as i'm concerned is because they're successful because they work hard and they they dedicate it to their family and they i i don't get it uh, and you know us there ain't nothing to make us hate somebody than somebody getting what we want, you know. Uh, but anyway, so this makes sense to them, you know, when they say a merchant. They, a lot of other places at this point in time, they wouldn't have any idea what you're talking about, a merchant. You're either rich or you work for somebody rich. That's all there is. You know, there's, not, there's no middle class. Uh, this pearl bankrupt the merchant. And a merchant, a smart merchant, wouldn't do that unless he knew he had a win. The only thing of value he had from this point on was the pearl everything he had he didn't buy it for his own gain it doesn't say that he bought it to possess it uh, not to profit from it which is a strange thing it doesn't say so that he could make more later he just knew its value was intrinsic i will not find anything on this earth more important than that it's so important i don't want to sell it for profit because there's no profit that will be better than keeping it so it's an interesting point. You are all that pearl. As everyone knows, the value of a thing is determined by the price someone is willing to pay to get it. Jesus gave his life to gain you. Uh, 
You belong to him. He treasures you. Now, once again, just like with the last one, this could be seen two ways. It could be a person finding the kingdom or the kingdom finding us. Works either way, honestly. You could preach that either way and you'd be right. Um, you know, somebody who spent their whole life searching, you know, Solomon, you know, vanity of vanities. In the end, love the Lord your God with all your heart and, you know, uh, obey the law. Uh, so it works either way. Uh, the value, our value is implied from somewhere else. God's value is intrinsic. It's always what it was. But the value is there. You're extremely valued because God said you are. You're, God said you're the pearl. Uh, it, whatever anybody else says doesn't mean anything. That's what matters. And so if you're going to go that way, that's fine. Um, I tend to see it the other way, but it, I, I, like I said. So he, from that one, he goes to this one. This is the third of the quick hitters. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast out in the sea and gathering fish of every kind. Uh, drag nets are often carried by two boats. Uh, it's a net that goes out, and it just they weight it, and it goes down. And then, well, in those days, they rowed, and they drug the net across the water, and whatever was swimming by got caught in the net. It could be done with one, but you stop think about it. It would only be as wide as the boat. Two boats you can make as wide as you want. Uh, this parable changes direction from the value of the kingdom to what has little or no value. Uh, like the seeds from the sower lands on all the different ground, the dragnet picks up all the fish without discrimination. This is a theme. This a uh, little bit of this, a little bit of that, and the sorting. Uh, you can go through a lot of places. Well, the one is not a, a parable at all. It's the sheep and the goats. That's this, you know, in a parable. And when it filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers but the bad they threw away. When the day is done, the great separation, the carp and the walleye, you know, the walleye are the best fish carp people throw away, well, in this country. Uh, the goats and the sheep, the wheat and the tares, it's the same thing. Uh, anytime this, many thing, this theme gets said that many times, pay attention to it. Uh, the good were kept, the bad were thrown away. This account is real. It's coming. Live your life like you know it, is, would be my advice. This is a theme that goes throughout uh, the Gospels. Christ brings it up again and again. Nobody should be surprised when it happens. It's going to happen. Uh, you have a chance now to take a plea bargain. Once sentencing comes, it's too late. And what this is telling us is sentencing comes. For those who did not take the plea bargain, I'll, you know, I'll take Christ's sacrifice for me, then it's sentencing. That's all there is. There is nothing else. Uh, there's nothing in Scripture says there is anything else. I will go as far as to say, and I don't know what you're planning on talking about, but uh, I will delve into the other side of this, that in heaven there are degrees of reward. Scripture says it plainly. In hell there are degrees of punishment. Um, you know, what did he say? He said, uh, Sodom and Gomorrah will fare better than you to Capernaum. So there must be a degree of punishment if they're going to fare better. I mean, I don't want any punishment, but it's the same with the blessings. You know, uh, the people who will do well in heaven, it, there, it, there's times that plainly says it. 
I don't know enough to tell anybody what makes what what. I just know it's that way. But point is, there's punishment, there's reward, there's nothing else. There's degrees in there. I've never heard it said to me or taught to me or I never read anything that fully explained that to me that I would feel comfortable enough to say, this is how it is. I just let people know it's there. Uh, it said, so will be at the end of the age. The angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous. You know, I'm always fascinated anytime it says something about the angels. We read over it and stop to think, don't really think what the angels actually do. And uh, every time I see them doing something or be told to do something, it interests me. Like, it's just something I have no, no idea about. And, uh, you know, you can't surely go too far with this angel thing, you know, like praying to them and, you know. Uh, but what they do is extremely fascinating. And basically, in heaven, the difference between them and us is we had a choice. You know, we lived through this. We have the scars. They don't. And when it says, uh, you will judge the angels. Okie dokie, buddy. And, you know, and there's a little scripture that says, do you not know you will judge the angels? Well, most of us don't know that, and I don't know what that means. But the reason we will is because we lived through what we lived through, and they did not. And... Uh, it's really fascinating. The angels are the messengers of God. They speak and enact His will. Uh, if an angel shows up and tells you, "Do this," do you know it's coming from God, not them? If not, that's between them and God. Uh, this is not done of their will, but God's. They are not to enact their own judgment, but act on God's judgment. So, when an angel shows up in Scripture and says something, it's from God, and they're just the the person who comes to tell you. I don't know, you know, there's a reason, well, nobody can see God and live, one reason. Um, but they, there's cherubs, there's, uh, I'm going to leave it at that. Uh, that's its own, yeah. That's I a, have a question. That's like a four-part series, brother. When it says that God gives his angels charge over you, and I think it's Psalms or Proverbs, does that mean he assigns an angel to you? or like? I don't know. Situation? It just says angels. It doesn't, my understanding is it didn't say an angel to you. Okay. Uh, but he has them like, caring for you. And uh, I'll take that any way it goes. <laughs> I don't know enough to tell you exactly what that entails. I mean, do they make sure I go to the cheapest gas station, uh, you know, or, you know, things like that. Uh, I don't know how hard that goes, but let's charge over you. It's the things that concern God about me mm -hmm. are things that concern them. That's the best way I could put it. Uh, you know, whether I find uh, the best pizza shop I don't think is on the list, you know, uh, things like that. Um, the real spiritual things and even the things... I've often said this. There's things that matter to God because they matter to you. Because uh, he's a father. And uh, he won't go against his own will for that. But if it's incidental to his will, uh, I've always felt that God is more than, you know, sure, why not? Uh, I'm sure you have taken note of the harshness of the judgment for the non-repentant. This verse is identical to verse 42. And it echoes Daniel 3, 6. Uh, I should read the verse, I guess. And while throw, and throw them into the furnace of fire, in that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's some really serious stuff, man. Oh, political crap. Um, uh, it's purposefully harsh. 
so that we don't just lull ourselves into a sense of security. And for us that are saved, it should be uh, push us towards making sure everybody is because it's drastic. I mean, doing what we can do. There are times when I just honestly don't pay much attention to somebody else's spiritual well-being. I'm busy. You know, I'm taking care of my life. There should never be such a time. You know, and, and I know that. I should care as much about them as God does. You know, his heart should be my heart. Because the outcomes are drastic. And there's times I stop thinking about that and I go, oh, you know. I know that the, the responsibility for them coming to the Lord is with the Lord and the Holy Spirit. It's between him and the Holy Spirit. But I also know that I have a responsibility in that too. And not only a responsibility, but an opportunity. It's bigger than, you know, it's it's more than that. Um, he lets you do it. You know, and then I so there's times I don't treasure that. Uh, there's times I'm just busy doing something else. And what else can I be doing that's more important than keeping someone from this? Doing what I can do to keep them from this. Uh, this verse is identical to 42 and it echoes Daniel 3.6 where Nebuchadnezzar demands to be worshipped by any who would... Uh, but any who failed would have this fate thrown into the furnace of fire. As real as the blessings of heaven are, so are the horrors of hell. Uh, Daniel 3.6 But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. It's strange to take this from Nebuchadnezzar saying it to Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and apply it to God saying it to the unrepentant. But it's sort of a foreshadowing. It's, I'm not saying that Nebuchadnezzar is like God, but uh, it's sort of the same thing. At 51, so he's, he says all these things, and then he turns to his, his disciples and says, Have you understood all these things? They said to him, Yes. Um, not really, because they ask questions later. It's something, you know, have you ever been there and somebody is explaining something to you and you're gone? And they said, did you get it? And you go, yeah, because you don't, you just want them to stop, you know, because, yeah. Uh, Jesus wants to know if they're getting the truth of these parables. They respond that they are, maybe not wanting to appear as dim as some of the future statements would indicate they didn't quite get it. Uh, but they would. And I think Jesus knows they didn't, not all of it, you know. Jesus uh, laid out what the kingdom would go through from his resurrection to his return. It would grow worldwide. It would be infiltrated by the unrighteous. This is just this chapter. This is the parables from this chapter. This is some heavy stuff. It would be infiltrated by the unrighteous, the church. And in, all, in, in the end, all accounts would be settled as the sheep would be retained and the goats would be cast away from the presence of God. Not sure if they could have fully understood these things. I mean, it's easy for us in hindsight, but once again, Jesus told these 12 poor, undereducated men in the middle of nowhere that epic and worldwide events would come from what they were doing and what they were about to do. And I still, you know, I don't know if they could ever fully comprehend that 2,000 years later, that here we would be talking about, you know, over here, wars would be fought. I mean, people would be healed. People, you know, just amazing things. I don't think they got it, and but Jesus was cool with that. You will, you know. 
And Jesus said to them, verse 52, Therefore every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like the head of a household who brings out his treasures, uh, things new and old. That's kind of a neat statement. The scribes are Old Testament people, and uh, scribes would be uh, capable of linking together what Scripture said and what's going to happen and is already happening. This one amazes me. We've become so used to scribes being spoken of in the negative that we have to push the clutch in for a moment and realize that all of those who study the law are legalists. Some people study the law, the real law, because they wanted to know it. Uh, those who devoted themselves to and understanding the Old Testament, the law, and the new, the grace that's coming, and were able to weave them together, we stand on their shoulders, uh, brings valuable treasure to those who hear it. What he's saying is, theologian is not a bad word. It can surely get its own, you know, but the word in and of itself is not the problem. It's what people do with it. So it's kind of a neat little thing. To me, this little verse right here, it, it speaks to a lot of things that are even happening now. Uh, so often when people go off on tangents, theologians, and they're trying to explain something that they want to be true, and you're looking at it and you're going, wow, you know, where, you know, and they've got these degrees from here and there, and you know, and the old lady that lives next door just seems to understand scripture better than they do. Uh, and so then in my mind, you know, even after my little jaunt into seminary, I found myself starting to just sort of, eh, I don't even want to hear what you got to say. You know, uh, what he's saying is they're there. They've always been there. They're always going to be there. And uh, they're really important. That idea of old treasure and new and bringing them out and making them into one thing, a treasure, is really important. Uh, Leon Morris wrote this Jesus pointed out that there are fresh insights that are of value and that there are also teachings that have stood the test of time they weave them together uh, they see it because they're looking for it they're not looking for what they want to find which is always the most important thing to open in the book what do you want me to see uh, I, there's been a lot of times in my life I opened that book looking for the, the point I wanted to make you know I know it's in there. And, you know, and <laughs> now I want another one. That one seems to say something different. So I'm going to that one fast. But uh, that's always wrong. And it takes a long time to figure that out. Jesus is telling us that it's all coming together. What was, is, and what will be are meeting and congealing. And there's going to be people who will put it together. It's sort of a future thing because nobody's doing that right now. They don't really know what they got. Uh, you know, once again, our hindsight is great. This verse is going to mean something to them, those twelve guys, in about ten years, five to ten years, when it's they're going to well, they're going to be these guys, some of them, you know. Fifty-three. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. From here through chapter eighteen, things to become quite different, difficult for Jesus and the Twelve. It's sort of a turning point. Remember I said he's no longer really going into the uh, teaching in the synagogues. He's doing a lot more of his teaching out. It's, he still goes in, but the shift is out to the people because it's becoming extremely dangerous for him to go into 
the you know the synagogues and all those sort of things because who's there but the priest and the priest they're an enemy uh the jewish leaders are jealous and resentful and the people are becoming <coughs> disenchanted as it becomes evident that jesus has no intention of overthrowing the romans they're showing up to get healed they're showing up to get fed and they're showing up to hear what he's going to do now the people who came to get healed are happy the people who came to get fed are happy the people who came to hear the truth are happy but the people who came to hear what they wanted to hear they're not happy and they're getting less happy the whole time i mean he's he at this point in time he's starting to surpass the popularity of john the baptist he's a force in the country it's you know whenever he gets off a boat shows up everyone knows who he is i mean do you realize without tv or radio or anything saying this is what he looks like and you're hearing his speeches i mean just by word of mouth if he gets off a boat they look that's jesus and they run and get people and thousands of people run to him uh, that's how powerful he is and people see that which is what people have always done with the power of god and they say what can i do with that i could use that to get what i want and god says no you can't you know and we keep trying throughout our history the church has tried to do that we've never been able to shake it jesus is leaving capernaum and walking to nazareth Capernaum was on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee. If you're looking at a clock, it would be like at uh, 11 o'clock. Nazareth is down here at like 9 or 8.30, you know, but it's still pretty close. Uh, Nazareth was at the southwest of there, in the middle of the region, roughly 20 miles away. Still a good distance from the danger of Jerusalem. Don't lose sight of we're still up north. You know, we're still in Galilee. Uh, as, as tough as it's becoming up there, it's nothing like Jerusalem. Why? Because all the priests, the high priests, are there. That's the root of Jewish political power, is Jerusalem. He came to his hometown, Nazareth, and began teaching them in their synagogue. This is one of the few times when he went, he went to his home synagogue, the synagogue he grew up in. It would be like you know, going back to Marius Brown. So they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? This is one of the last time Matthew notes Jesus going to a synagogue. From here on, he teaches outside of the official Jewish religious establishment. I'm not saying he did, but it's the last time Matthew notes it. Perhaps synagogues were becoming dangerous. I said all this. Who? Yeah. And, uh, the anonymity between Jesus and the religious leaders, uh, animosity, sorry, had become palatable. Every time they get together, there's an argument. There's accusations. They try things on Jesus. Jesus humiliates them, which makes them matter. Every time he, every time they walk away, shut up. You know, they 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 get together. They scheme. Let's go do this to them. We'll ask them this, and then they'll have to do that, and then we'll have them. <coughs> they show up. They try to do it, and they walk away looking stupid in front of thousands of people. That just makes them matter. You know, honestly, and he knows that he's fine with that he's he's stoking the fire that's going to burn him so uh what he said and did in the synagogues impressed the people as they were amazed at his wisdom and the miracles so it wasn't just the healings it was also what he said and those two things are meant to be together miracles are to legitimize his words 
that's remember when uh, he healed the the man born blind. I think that's what it was on his way into Jerusalem for the last time. He was on the road, and they took the man in and they said to him, you know, explain what happened. And he said, uh, you know, this and that. And, he, and the guy says, the poor beggar says to the Sanhedrin, isn't it strange that you don't know? Why are you asking me? He said, has there ever been a prophet who healed someone who was born blind? And they said, you're, you're dark. They couldn't answer his question. What he's saying to them is, isn't that proof enough of who he is? Shouldn't you know that? And he's talking to the chief priest. And he's a beggar. And those words are in there for a reason. All this is coming to a head here. Uh, where did these things come from? He didn't have them when we knew them. Remember, the first miracle was water to wine. Yes, there's a lot of teachings out there about what Jesus was as a youth. If it's not in Scripture, I read it for entertainment. I don't take it seriously. I don't include it in my theology. Like healing a crippled bird or whatever. You know, uh, my Do you remember what he said to his mother when she said, help these people at this wedding? Mother, my time has not come. Which gives you an idea of he was holding back the, up until that time. He was holding back. He was not doing these things. That's my opinion. Uh, she knew. I don't know how she knew. But nobody else in that room knew. But she did. And he said, it's not yet. So my opinion is that uh, all these people in Nazareth had never seen him do anything like this. You know? Uh it's basically he didn't do these things when we knew him remember the first miracle was water and the wine they also know he wasn't a priest he wasn't a scribe he wasn't a pharisee he wasn't a sadducee he was a carpenter and they knew that is not this the carpenter's son is not his mother mary and his brothers james joseph simon and judas and and actually this james that they just mentioned many believe and most believe that he wrote the book of james that guy right there how can he be a prophet or a messiah? He's the son of Joseph and Mary. As if where you're born or something is how God picks that you're a prophet, you know. Uh, we know his brothers and sisters. They live here with us. And, and his sisters, are they not all with us? Where did this man get all these? Where did this man get all these things? You know, uh, they're not questioning his abilities. They saw it. They're questioning where he got them. Uh, he obviously has them there's not so their cho their decision isn't they're not saying is he tricking us is that magic is he you know is he pulling the wool over our eyes that hasn't apparently he's just taken that out the window i mean whatever he's done they can't deny it uh perhaps they're seeing it was trickery or some evil source you know they're trying to figure it out like is you know how deep should we go into this According to this, Jesus had at least six siblings, four brothers, and more than one sister. It said sisters in the plural. So for our much-loved Catholic brethren who believe that Mary was a perpetual virgin, uh, what we're saying is then there would have had to have been, you know, at least six other immaculate conceptions. But uh, by law, she should have had other children and how it all worked out. Uh, just so everybody's clear on that, I mean, there was a whole family. You know. Some of the, the Catholics would respond that they are uh, not blood. Yes. Siblings, but that's just. 
Yeah. They, I, they view it. Okay. Right. It's how they get their. It's how they make their theology work. I agree. Yeah. Oh uh, no! I, yeah, right. Uh, and they well, what the reason? The only reason it even matters is because the deification of Mary and the worship of Mary. You know, who I think she would be offended by the whole thing. You know, personally, but you know, I understand why they do. And they took offense. And it says and the next line is, and they took offense at him. So they made their decision. Where did he get it? And they decided oh, it can't be anything good. It's probably not anything good. You know, uh, who does he think he is? God? <laughs> you know, that's it. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown or even in his own household. Uh, well, part of that is not in his case, but in there just about every other case, it's because they know you really well. You know what a stinker you are, you know what I mean? No matter what you get up there and say, they go, isn't that the knucklehead that, you know, and yeah, it is. But in his case, they, there was nothing bad they could have known about him. Uh, you, know, you know what their greatest complaint was? He was a carpenter. They didn't say, remember when he did that wrong? Remember when he, you know, killed a goat with a stick, you know, or whatever, stole from the corner grocer? <coughs> the other thing they could say to him was, he's from here and he's a carpenter. He can't be the Messiah. Uh, we usually read this and ponder what Jesus is saying about his hometown folks who rejected him. But Jesus says something very important about himself here. We could miss this. He openly proclaims himself to be a prophet. He says it out loud. A prophet is... Not, he said that out loud. What he's saying is, I'm a prophet. Which he is. You know, the prophet. <coughs> not just a teacher, which everybody called him. They called him rabbi. They called him teacher. He's saying, I'm more than that. Remember what a prophet is. A messenger from God who speaks what God once said. That's a prophet. It, you know, we often in our minds think of prophet as someone who tells future events. That's not what a prophet is. They often do that. But a prophet, from God's lips to their brain, out their lips... And that's what God always said. If a prof, if any prophet of mine ever says anything different than what I said to him, I will kill them. You know, take them out and stone them. It's that important. Uh, so it's easy to miss that here, but that's a big statement. You know, it, it seems like they're complain. He's complaining about them, which he is, but he's also making a very bold statement. I'm a prophet. He did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. This doesn't say he couldn't which many of our uh, Pentecostal brethren would like to grab onto. You're not healed because you don't believe. You know, it's your fault. Uh, you can control God. You can make God do things if you just have enough faith. They'll use the phrase, he has to. Oh, man, that scares the bejeebers out of me, telling God he has to do something. You know, I just move away from you because you're in a lightning bolt zone. I, I don't know where you got your theology, but you might want to really... Anyway, this doesn't say couldn't. It says he didn't. Our faith or lack of faith does not limit God. He's omnipotent. Uh, in other words, there was nothing that stopped God other than God chose not to. Uh, you know, it wasn't that God couldn't overcome their lack of faith if he wanted to. He has, however, chosen to honor faith with gracious responses. I'll say it again. Faith is the commodity in the kingdom of heaven. It's the money. It's what 
matters. It's what has value. Uh, faith, hope, and love. That's it. The three are so intertwined. You could preach on that for two months. How the one is, leads to the other. and they're, yeah. Miracles are meant to build faith. They come with an expectation of belief based on what they've seen and experienced. Obviously, all the miraculous things Jesus had done up to that point had little impact on them. They did not have faith that they should have had. And that's a big phrase, the faith you should have had. You know those people who fought their way through the crowd and said and kept yelling, Jesus, heal me, Jesus, heal me. And people are saying, leave him alone, get out of here. And they just wouldn't stop. He always stopped and healed those people because they knew he could. They really believed it. And he honored that. That didn't free him to do it. It made him want to do it. it that's the best way to put it. Point is, we are held responsible for the faith we should have. God will hold you to it. So uh, we'll stop there because it's the end of a chapter and there's only three minutes left. You and, did good. And I, well, I did good because he reminded me about five minutes after, so I'm actually, I'm actually four minutes over. So oh, let me get rid of that. Uh, we'll pick up on chapter 14. We're blowing through this. Uh, just the uh, uh, just a quick summary of the parables: the sower, uh, thirteen one through twenty three; the wheat and the weeds; uh, the mustard seed; the yeast; the hidden treasure; the pearl; the net. Um, all jammed into one little chapter. It was like Matthew decided I'll write a chapter, but it's all at this time when he started to do it, and he just whoo! When he started to do it, out they came, and. Uh, we're still reading them. We're still learning from them. They still hold true. So, any questions, comments, criticisms, anything like that? Do you know if uh, prophets were still typically around at this point, or were they done? John the Baptist is the only one I can name. I can't think of anybody else that that the scripture names. Right. That I lets us know that. In, in Jewish tradition, if that was something they were used to seeing, or if it was like. This hasn't happened for 300 years. Uh, well, I assume just like here, there were a lot of people, they, they called them prophets and that weren't really, you know, they they really wanted someone to have the title because um, you'll see it used in Pentecostal churches, the title, and in a lot of uh, black churches, they still call someone prophet. Um, I, if it works for them, but for me, it's when you, you assume that title, man, Whoa. I want nothing to do with it unless God shows up in a vision and tells me that, you know, because there's a lot of responsibility that comes with that title. Well, and, does um, that happen in the Jewish tradition still, or no? I have not They're heard not anything right? of it. The last no. person in Scripture that, um, of course, all the 12 who wrote the book, the books themselves are prophetic. You know what I mean? It, it's God's voice to the world. Um, those 12 would be considered but to your question from the Jewish tradition John the Baptist standing there saying behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world that if that's all he ever said that makes him a prophet he sees the spirit come down on him I they say there are prophetess and prophets a lot of times in the New Testament when Paul writes to a church they'll say and it's usually a woman uh, she was a prophetess. Uh, remember, Scripture has not come yet. Don't ever forget that, how important that is. It's easy for us. We know the will of God. We open it up. I 
click a button on my computer and there it is. <coughs> that was, well, they didn't have a Bible. So when Paul says that a woman at a church was a prophetess, I believe him. Paul wouldn't say it if, it if she didn't prove to be a prophetess. I don't know if it means prophetess in the same sense that John the Baptist, but a prophetess within that church. Uh, not the prophet who stands out in the world and says, you know, repent or you're all going to die. It seems to me to be a little different, but it seems to also to mean the same responsibility that, you know, you say what I tell you to say or I'll take you away. You know, it, there's no if and don't make anything up. Don't make it sound your way. You know, and I think it's Jeremiah and all this. It says it continually. It, the warnings are everywhere, you know. But it's an interesting question. Um, that's the last I know is uh, those 12 guys and the uh, once in a while the occasional mention of somebody in the church when Paul writes a letter. Uh, I have to. I don't know why I think that, but I I thought there was a couple women that he mentioned too that the woman was a prophetess, you know, or something like that, or their and their daughters were prophetesses. It's, it was amazingly, it was every time I think of it, I could be wrong. That's that's a good research question, you know. Type in prophet or prophetess for New Testament, you know, and search in there and see what comes up. Um, it's almost always women, and which I find fascinating. Uh, I do. When you consider what we've done with women in ministry, if they're actual prophetesses, then God just isn't really going to care. He said, no, that's the prophet. I don't care what you think about it. You know, listen or don't listen. It's up to you. That's who I'm using. You know? So that's why I've always been not as uh, far right as my brethren and some brethren in the ministry who, who use scripture, and I understand their scriptures about women being in ministry. So you're saying they can't be a pastor, but Scripture says they're a prophet? <laughs> okay, uh, you know, I'll just, I don't know how you rectify that, because prophet seems to be a little bit deeper. A pastor will listen to a prophet, <laughs> you know what I mean? Uh, like, you know, I'll go and tell. My job is to tell what the prophets said. That's my job, to learn it, and then put it out there and make it applicable to your life. That is my job. I'm a prophet interpreter and a prophet, you know, that's my job because that's what scripture is. And uh, that's a really good question. Now you got me running on it. Um, yeah. Anything else, anybody? Well, let's pray. Father, we come before you, and Lord, I just thank you so much for these people. And I just ask, Lord, that you bless their efforts to get to know you and to conform to the image of Christ. Help them to do that, Lord. Continue to use them, continue to bless the people that they encounter and bless their lives. And Lord, I always ask you to make them strong, wise, brave, and compassionate and help them to glorify your name in what they think, what they do, and what they say. In Jesus' name, amen. amen.